Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 835 with Michael Chernow. I think the key to it is being able to make decisions. You know, fear stands in the way of success most of the time, whether fear of failure or fear of success. Fear is really the roadblock for many, many people. When you're able to look fear in the face and laugh and make decisions, whether you think you're going to, whether it's super duper risky or when you can make a decision that if you, if you win, the reward is, is so incredible. And if you lose, it could be over. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, Unstoppables, I want to use this ad space to let you know about an affiliate relationship I have with the company Mies. Actually, Mies has been a past sponsor, but they've adopted this really great affiliate program, and I want to give it a shot. But here's the thing. I won't get credit for your referral unless you use my specific, special, unique Link and that link is getmes.com slash unstoppable. So if you listen to this ad and you want me's, make sure you use that link. And instead of actually uh, recording a new ad, I really like the first one I did with them. So I'm just going to roll it and uh, let the ad work. It's magic. Here it is. Here are four reasons why you need me's in your restaurant. One, it's the most accurate recipe costing tool on the planet. Never again waste time trying to find yields and converting unit measures or creating extra sub recipes just to account for yield updates because Mies has a database of thousands of ingredients and prep actions with yields and conversions built right into the interface. So you get immediate output of your costs and your conversions. That's huge. Number two, you will train your staff the right way and save countless hours your team sees in real time updates of all the recipe content plus you can send notifications and answer questions directly through me's quickly and easily create slideshows with video and image so you can show your team exactly what they need when they need it here's the third reason why you need me's in your restaurant you will reduce waste and execute with consistency me's enables you to make precisely the amount of food you need and that's because every ingredient has automated unit conversions Tell Mies how many portions you want, watch your recipe scale automatically. Tell Mies how much yield you want, watch it scale automatically. You can even enter the amount of ingredients you have on hand and then watch the recipe scale automatically. Here's the fourth and final reason why you need Mies in your restaurant. It organizes and shares your content like never before. Mies is like Google Drive specifically for the culinary operation. Here's your call to action. Go to get Mies. That's M-E-E-Z dot com slash unstoppable and make sure you mention Restaurant Unstoppable when signing up to get three free months when you get the annual business plan. Get on it. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on 
Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder, this podcast needs your support. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast, and you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network, uh, where we're really just coming together, supporting one another, and I kind of want to make this podcast not, you know... Eric Cacciatore's podcast, but the industry's podcast where we come together and I serve you and we, we brainstorm solutions and topics. And if you want to be a part of that, join restaurant stoppable network today, we're talking to Michael Chernow. So Michael Chernow and uh, Daniel Holzman are people are that I've been wanting to get on the show for a while now. I've been able to connect with Michael super psyched. Uh, their story goes back to 2000. 10, 2009, 2010, uh, where they partnered up to open the, the meatball shop. They scaled this thing crazy in five years and they had the opportunity to really scale with private uh, equity investment. This created a lot of divide in the partnership for lack of better terms between Michael and his partner. Uh, we get into that a little bit, but really what they created with the meatball shop, there's tons of lessons to be learned here. Uh, Michael went on to uh, tackle Seymour's, uh, which I believe he scaled to five locations throughout New York City. And today he is uh, developing his own lifestyle brand. And, and I'm really excited about this idea of lifestyle brands because I think that what you're going to see in, in the restaurant industry is people developing personal brands first and then using those personal brands to launch their restaurant concepts with. Uh, it starts with developing that storyline, developing your brand, and then building off of that. And uh, Michael kind of went out of order, but uh, he, his focus today is his lifestyle brand and launching products off that lifestyle brand. And his product today is Creatures of Habit. So we get into that. We also talk about his come up, his challenges with alcohol and substance abuse, how he overcame that, and the partnership he had with Daniel Holzman. And it's a really great episode. So 
I know you'll enjoy it. And if you are interested in what happened with the meatball shop after Michael and Daniel decided to part ways, uh, they sold it to Adam Rosenbaum and I actually had Adam on the show. So that was episode 788. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 788 if you want to check out that episode as well. All right, here you go. Michael Chernow. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the founder of Seymour's, co-founder of The Meatball Shop, founder of Creatures of Habit, and the host of Born or Made podcast, Michael Chernow. My man, Michael, you're feeling unstoppable today. I am feeling unstoppable on, yes. a, on a daily. I'm, 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 uh, I live the unstoppable lifestyle. You really do, man. Um, I've had fun the past couple of days really digging deep into your story and listening to a couple of your episodes on the podcast, watching the TV show Consumed. That is an awesome show, by the way. I didn't, I didn't even know about that. I don't know how that show was off my radar, but you do live that unstoppable lifestyle for sure. And I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? You know, there's a quote that, that I actually coined um, that I believe at my core is essentially my superpower. And the quote is, the business of business is relationships and yes. the foundation of relationships is trust. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know when I actually came up with that, but I learned early on in my life that uh, relationship development is something that I am addicted to and something that I truly hold near and dear to my heart. I love, I love relationships. And luckily I ended up in the restaurant business, uh, where I can, where I've, where I've developed, you know, hundreds of relationships over the years. Dude, I am going to pull back some layers, um, on your, your relationship junkie habit, because that is some powerful stuff. And I, I agree. Um, this is like business is just about it's all about relationships. That's all it is is managing relationships. Obviously, there's more that comes into it, but at the core of it, it's just people don't do business with businesses. People do business with people, right? Um, I love that's just a great way to get this thing started. So, your story, um, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you started working in restaurants in high school, but at this point, were you like committed? Like, when did you know that this was going to be? Or, I mean, you as it safe to say you've since got off the path of restaurants? Is that something you don't want to get back into? No, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I actually, for the first time in my life, have been off the path of restaurants just recently. Yeah. Uh, but the first, uh, you know, I, I got my first restaurant job when I was 12 okay. as a delivery boy. Uh, worked my way into the kitchen as a dishwasher and a prep cook and then a bus boy. And, uh, you know, I think for me, for whatever reason, as early as I can remember, I've always wanted to make, do, and create. I just have, and you know, you know, when I was five years old, six years old, I, I, you know, instead of like piling up my old toys in the corner of my bedroom, I would ask my sister to come downstairs. I should say I grew up in New York city on 87th street between first and second Avenue, okay. but I would ask my sister or my older sister to come downstairs with me in front of our building. I drop down a sheet and I put all of my toys and lay them out on a sheet and sell them for a buck. I was just always thinking about how can I create more um and do more and i don't know why you know that's why i have a podcast called born or made because i believe that some people are just born with an inherent ability or an inherent desire to want to make do and create and others aren't and i don't think that there's anything wrong with either one um the life of an entrepreneur is obviously you know risky yeah uh and 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 sort of um 
you know, if you hit it, you can really, really be successful. And if you don't, it can be really painful. But I think for me, you know, I've experienced both and it is, um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't think I can live any other way. That's the truth. And so, you know, I I started, when I got my first job in a restaurant, I was really excited to be there. It was an environment that I was drawn to. I love people. I I believe my sort of why in life is to, um, is to, to, to make others happy. Like I really enjoy being of service and I love people and I love, as I said, developing relationships. And so when I arrived in that restaurant when I was 12, even though I was just delivering food and then ultimately working in the kitchen, um, and then the front, I felt like I had arrived, you know, and I became hooked on working in restaurants yeah. and in that fast paced. So that of- super resonates with me, man. Um, 100 uh, percent just loved the, the again the focus on relationships and people and do you, would you say that you enjoy like is, is there like a like a dopamine hit you get when you see that somebody's enjoying what you do for them like is that one of the things that draw i think i've seen that there's like a common path of just being seen and being recognized for being good at something and then that that cookie is like i think might be or have a lot to do with why people fall in love with this because it's constant of like just being seen what are your thoughts on that well, I think that I am passionate about discovery and uncertainty, and I'm an insanely curious guy. I've, you know, my wife breaks my balls constantly about it because I can engage in a in a in a deep conversation with every with anyone, you know, and 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 with the most random individuals, I can sort of really engage in conversation. I really I I I I thrive in. Uh, those unique conversations. Yeah, it's no wonder you gravitated toward, toward the front of the house. But you went to the culinary, uh, the French Culinary Institute. So, at what point? I mean, you knew early on that you wanted to do food and beverage. You wanted to do the restaurant industry. Was there a trigger, a moment in time where you're like, "This is it. This is what I'm committed to"? Not until I mean, you know, it's an interesting question. I did not. I I I fell in line right away. I was good at my job right away. I excelled in it outside of one restaurant. I remember very clearly where I did not excel in it, uh, but I was also a mess personally. I, I think once I got sober, which I'm sure we'll get into, then and only then was I did I make the clear conscious decision that I was going to make this my career. Okay, I knew that I was good at people. So you got sober at 23. Correct yeah. me. I, I just I I watched this. I don't have always have like the the privy of getting to watch a TV show and listen to a guest podcast. So there's just a ton of like information out there on you. So I, I have a good idea of your timeline. I'm a little confused as to what was happening. You opened in 2009 ish, 10, right? 2010. Okay. But you were working on it in 2009, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So w- what year was it when you were 23? Uh, 2004, 2004. So seven years basically went on from when you decided that, you know, you're going to get clean. You're going to focus on this being your career. At this point, were you saying you're going to, you're going to open something? Was that the goal? Yeah. So basically what happened was I got sober. I knew that I, you know, and, 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 and there'd been years. I mean, I'd been working in restaurants already at that point for 11 years. And people had constantly been tapping me on the shoulder and telling me, you know, you're you're a special guy. You got to get your shit together, man. You have a lot to offer. You got to get your shit together. And I just didn't really receive that well or at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more focused on 
making money because I was making a f- good amount of money for my age in the industry and I was more focused on, um, you know, quote unquote, enjoying myself. Yeah. So you went to school, to, um, assuming 18 years old, culinary school? No, actually, I went to culinary school when I was 25. Oh, all yeah. right. So I decided once I got sober that I was going to do it. And I took Frank Prisanzano, who was my boss at the time, aside. Um, and he was actually a catalyst for me getting sober. And about a year and a half after I got sober, I said, Frank, I, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And I would love some advice. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Mikey, I love you, man, but I just don't know if you have it in you. Ooh. And that was a hit to the gut. And so what do you I think he meant by that. Where were you lacking? I think when you well, I think he watched me sort of you know, in a, in a, in a, in a big old mess of, of booze for a long time. Okay. So he maybe potentially didn't think I was responsible enough to do it. Um, but I will also say that when I ask him now, he says that, that he said that to motivate me. Mm. Um, that meeting was at his apartment because I wanted to, I wanted to really have his attention. And, um, he, uh, you know, he said, I don't know if, if you have it in you. And it really hit me in the gut. <laughs> but I told him that regardless of what he said, I was going to go for it and do it. Nice. And I knew at that moment that I was just going to take the leap. And he said, you know, Mike, if you're really serious, you should go to culinary, culinary school. And so, you know, and I had always cooked and I always loved to cook. And I used to show up at uh, this really great little spot in the East Village called, called Perketa. Um, years ago, Sarah Jenkins restaurant. And I used to show up there at like six o'clock in the morning with the butcher and roll the porchettas. And I, I became insanely passionate about porchetta. And I would, I would, you know, work with the guys downstairs at Frank. Um, but really I was a front of the house guy. And, and Frank said to me, look, dude, you know, you gotta, if you want, if you want to do it, you know, you should, you should go to culinary school. So I, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I enrolled in the French culinary Institute and, I loved it, and and halfway through the French culinary, my chef's culinary program, uh, they launched a new program there called the Restaurant Management Program, and uh, it was taught by Cornell professors from the hotel restaurant school there, and uh, a bunch of restaurateurs from Union Square Hospital. It wasn't Stephanie Robson by any chance, was it? Stephanie Robson, I don't. Uh, She was a she's a Cornell professor that just recently was on the show. I absolutely love that woman. She's super awesome, but a smart lady too. Uh, So let's tap the brakes a little bit because I think we could probably. I think I skipped over a lot uh, the early stuff Mm because you were working in restaurants throughout high school up until yeah. So I mean, is there anybody? I always like to kind of give a a tip of the hat to our, our mentors, right? Is there anybody that kind of helped groom you or steer you in this direction up to this point? Or is it just a job for money up to the point where you turn 24? You know, I didn't really have any mentors at that, at that age. I mean, I looked up to a number of people, but I was, uh, I was a maniac. I was a New York city kid. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 15 years old. So I was a New York city kid running around, um, you know, somehow, you know, graduated high school but but worked in restaurants and and a, and a few nightclubs throughout that those years but you know there was i thought i i thought i knew everything and um i really didn't pay much attention to success i just i just was living on a day-to-day basis at that in that in that time in my life i was working in the night i slept in the day and that was what i did and you know i would probably say the first real mentor i had um, unfortunately was not my father was probably Frank Prisanzano, um, my boss at Frank restaurant. You know, 
he would spend time with me, you know, sparingly, but he would spend time with me. And I just knew that what he had was what I wanted. What did he have? He had uh, confidence and he had an enormous amount of knowledge about Italian food and wine, which I was passionate about. Um, I really, really was passionate about Italian food and wine and he knew everything. There's one other guy in the city that I, that I feel I could give Frank a run for his money. And it's, it's Lou down at DiPaolo cheese in uh, little Italy, who's really sort of a, you know, an encyclopedia for Italian specialty stuff. But, um, you know, I, Frank, Frank, uh, really was a guy that I aspired to be and I wanted his approval. Um, was that Frank Bonanano you said? Frank. Prisonzano. Prisonzano. I was yeah. going to say, there's, there's a Bonanano in uh, Denver. I was like, did he start in New York? Uh, so anyway, <laughs> sorry. Thanks for correcting me. Um, so at what point, I mean, I'm curious because I think I want to talk about the uh, substance abuse because I think that that's a, you know, obviously a very big issue in our industry. Um, and I think it's people who might be admitting to their issues while listening to this might need some advice, Yeah, you know? So where, take us, paint that picture of how bad it got. You know, and like what what bad looks like and then what you did to get out of that situation. Yeah, it got really bad. Uh, You know, it went from I mean, when I was young, I mean, I started really indulging uh, as an escape mechanism for my rough upbringing at home. But I started really indulging in drugs and alcohol, more so drugs first than alcohol when I was like, you know, 13 years old. And I by the time I was 14, I was an absolute you know, drug addict actually. Um, but it didn't look like it because I was not in the street, you know, living on the sidewalk and, you know, I, I was a kid, so I, you know, I'm just a kid, but I really became, um, addicted to using substances at an early age. And it, and, and it started with like party drugs, like psychedelics and ecstasy and, you know, special K and those weird sort of party drugs. And then when I was 16, 17, it matured to drinking and cocaine. And, you know, I would say that marriage is very popular in the nightlife industry um, as restaurant, you know, restaurant, nightclub, you know, like that cocaine and and, and alcohol goes hand in hand, goes hand in hand, unfortunately. And it's and it's a pretty it it runs rampant throughout the industry. And so I felt very comfortable there. You know, I, 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 it's just what I did. I think too, when you're 18, 17, 19, even to your early twenties, like your body can just handle it a lot better. Like your body has resilience. You don't really know the damage you're doing and how much harder it's going to be later on. Right. Well, I knew that I was up to no good. I knew that I had a problem early on. I mean, I was in, you know, I tried a number of programs and I was very well aware in my teens that I had, you know, I was not like a normal user of a recreational user. I was like a real problem. But, you know, I couldn't stop. And I worked in a business where it was made it just very easy to do it and hide it. And so, you know, I uh, one thing led to the next and, and the cocaine, you know, became sometimes, you know, smoking cocaine and then it uh the alcohol was around the clock and ultimately one day somebody introduced me to heroin and you know you can only imagine yeah yeah, that it just got ugly and um you know i had overdosed on heroin uh, about uh two weeks before i got sober okay so this is when you're 24 yeah um, 23 yeah 23 gotcha um i mean it's 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 i mean a lot of people might be in the position you were in thinking I've gone too far, it's going to be too hard to get out. What, I mean, aside from having this mentor say, I don't think you have it and kind of maybe bruising your ego a little, or maybe just the, the idea that like, this is somebody you respect and admire and you, and they don't think you can do it. Like what was going through your mind when you said that? Well, I wasn't, I was sober then. 
I was sober then. Um, I, I, I'd stopped drinking when I was 23 and I had that meeting with Frank when I was 25. And so, uh, but, you know, to answer that question, um, I, when he said that to me, I was pretty crushed. Um, but I took the advice that he left me with, which was get, you know, go to culinary school. Yeah. And that's what I did. Yeah. What was that, that battle of sobriety like? Like what, what did you just step away from? Was it cold Turkey or did you use some kind of program or did you, um, I got really lucky. So just, so just to clarify the, the meeting with Frank was when I was 25 and I would, I'd already been sober for about got it, got it, a got year it, and a half. Thank you, thank you. So going back to sobriety now, um, or to when I got sober, I, um, I knew that enough, I had had enough, you know, I, I, I couldn't function anymore. I had slept through work uh, for the umpteenth time because I always did a double on, it was either a Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember. And I was up all night and, you know, like many of my coworkers, you know, we party hard and stay up really late and or into the next day. And um, I knew I had to be at work at 10. I lived in the building, so I lived upstairs. And uh, the guys that I, were, that I was partying with had, had called it a night at like, 8:39, and I went downstairs to my apartment and absolutely hated myself. Like, and and I'd hated myself for a while, um, but I really wanted to die. I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Mm. And uh, you know, I'd been on this two week sort of like you know death march. I just really was miserable. And somehow I passed out and slept through work. Slept 16 hours. People wow. were trying to bang my bedroom door down because um, they didn't know what the hell was going on. And uh, I showed up, you know, and Frank basically looked at me in the eyes and said, dude, I love you to death, man. I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. You're fired. And I said, uh, you can't fire me, man. It's all I got. And he said, I'm sorry, man. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm, you are one of the best. And you've got so much to offer but you're killing yourself and I'm not going to be the one to watch it happen. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go. When he said you're one of the best, the best at what? Making people happy. Yeah. So at this point you're front of house. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. I think we can move. I think we, we unpatched that pretty good. Thank you for getting into that. Uh, at what point, were you starting to say, this is, I want to open my own place. And when did you start living intentionally to make that happen? Or is there anything that we're skip? I don't want to skip over anything either. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, I had a couple of guys, um, that scooped me up some dudes that I thought were super cool and uh, they were sober and they knew that I had had enough. Um, and Frank gave me an ultimatum and he said, you know, I begged him enough to give me an ultimatum. And he said, either you can keep your job. I mean, either you can get sober and come here early in the morning and work with the porters in the restaurant and not on the floor uh, for a month and stay sober, or you can go. Um, but I'm not going to give you a job on the floor behind the bar or wherever you know for until you're until you're in a better position. Anyway, so I did that. I I I I, uh, I really did did that. I got sober um, and I made I, I was done and I knew I, I knew I was done and I. It wasn't very hard for me because I was completely shit canned. I was done. I, I mean, I could not. Um, I didn't want to live the life I was living anymore. Yeah. So you mentioned something real quick that I think is important to highlight that you found some sober people that yeah. scooped you up. And I know that you're uh, somebody who studies habit 
And that's one of the key triggers right there for any habit, whether it's positive or negative, is people and surrounding, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to get sober, if you're trying to get right, go find those people that have those positive routines and habits and surround yourself with them. Because if you get in the wrong crowds, it's really easy, you know, places and people trigger bad habits. So 100%. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I uh, no one can change anyone. People, people can only change themselves. Yeah. And I knew that I needed to change. I wanted to change. And so I, I like took the steps, right? Like I knew that I wanted to not hang out with the people I was hanging out with. And so I reached out to a friend who I knew was dating somebody that was sober. And this dude I thought was, you know, like I said, he was like this cool guy. And he met with me immediately. He was about seven or eight years older than me. And, and um, he said, look, you know, if you're serious about this, I can help you. And so I went to uh, I went to this this group of guys that were really trying to do the right thing in life, and um, and then after that, Marcus, who was this mentor of mine at the time, he took me down to a Muay Thai kickboxing gym, and he said, "This is what you're going to do now. You're going to you know you're going to replace your bad habits yes. with good ones, yeah. and you're going to come to that meeting every day. You're going to uh, you're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to have a bowl of oatmeal." <laughs> He, so he started teaching me how to eat. And then he said, you're going to go to this meeting. Then after the meeting, you're going to go to the gym. And you're going to train uh, for as long as you can handle it. And you're going to learn here about discipline, commitment, um, integrity, uh, you know, just getting your ass kicked and getting back up. And that's how we're going to build you up. Yeah. I, I listen to Joe Rogan a lot. And they talk about the the power of getting your ass kicked. Yeah. Um, humility and just like kind of how how does that how did that serve you in the healing process well i mean honestly i needed something to latch onto and i needed to feel like i i needed to feel um like i could win yeah you know and he knew that by putting me in there um there was an opportunity for me to understand what winning meant in 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 real life and um and so that's what started me on the way, you know, like humility is, is the cornerstone of my success. I think, um, you know, uh, I've, I've worked for so many people and now being my own boss for a number of years, um, understanding what it's like on the other side of the coin and being able to look at people for who they are, not for what they're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 culture is everything and I believe culture starts with humility and, uh, culture is, you know, defines a group of people, right? How they dance, how they sing, how they communicate, how they celebrate, how they mourn, what they eat, how they cook, uh, all those things define culture. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to create a positive culture um, when humility is not part of the picture. What is humility to you? When you say humility, what what do you define it in your terms? Um, Having um, patience with people, and not walking in with predisposed uh, judgments or assumptions, uh, giving people um, the benefit of the doubt, uh, not projecting my shit onto others, really, really being, um, uh, you know, an, an inclusive, being inclusive with my actions, whether I'm working for somebody or working, running my own show. Um, and so I think that people knowing that people understanding that, 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 that I am really a guy, a genuine, authentic dude who is passionate and has an opinion, but, uh, am also open to what others think and believe and don't put anybody in a, 
in a class at the restaurants or at the or at the businesses that I'm that I'm running. Blank know? sheet. Blank yeah. sheet. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I think right around now, as far as chronologically, we're 2004, 2005. You're getting you're getting straight. You're you're getting developing new habits. You're, you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, you're getting second chances. Uh, you graduate culinary school. Like a lot of good things are going for you at this point, right? Um, when does Daniel Holzman come back into your life? Like, what's when so, did you guys start saying like let's do something? So Daniel and I started a business. I mean, this started business. Daniel and I met uh, when I was twelve and he was thirteen. I was in eighth grade. He was in ninth grade. Our our mothers knew each other and introduced us. And he got me my first job at the Candle Cafe. So he was working there already. Got me my first job. He and I became very very we were, we were brothers. Um, mm-hmm. We became best friends for years and years. And uh, after uh, high school, um, we both took a year off. And then I tried to go to I tried to go to college for a year at Hunter and just hated it. Uh, and then Dan said he was going to move to LA. His brother was was he and his brother were going to move to LA. And I thought, you know, man, I'm struggling here in New York. Like maybe I should go out there with them. So I moved out to LA uh, with them. And I was an I was an absolute mess. Was just an where are we on the timeline when the, you guys move out to LA? Uh, this is in 2000. Okay, so before 2000. you got sober. Yep, 2000. Yeah. And then uh, I came back to New York after just under a year with my tail between my legs, you know, ready to just like, you know, throw in the towel. It was just a mess for me out there. But was it the, the same issues you had that you already kind of unpackaged? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like Michael goes where Michael yeah. goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I got back here, uh, you know, and, and when I finally got my shit together, Dan and his brother were super proud of me. And, you know, I said to him, I was like, dude, I'm, you know. I know it doesn't sound realistic now, but, you know, in a few years, I'm going to call you up and tell you I want to open up a restaurant and I want to do it with you. So sure enough, when I graduated culinary school, um, you know, it took me about just about two years because I did the restaurant management program as well. And I started calling Dan and I said, hey, dude, get back to the East Coast because he was working on the West Coast. He he had worked in every single fine dining, fancy restaurant in, you know, San Francisco. And I mean, he was Dan's a real chef, you know, really fucking awesome chef. Can I curse on this? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it happens, man. Like, Sorry. And I'll probably match you wherever you're at. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, uh, so you know, he said, I, I said, look, dude, let's let's do this, and and uh, and he said, you know, start the process, and I'll 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 figure out a way to get back. And so I would call him every you know every six to eight weeks and say, hey, dude, you know, when are you coming back? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm doing. Da-da-da. And then one day I called him, and he picked up the phone, and he sounded pretty bummed. And I was like, what's up, man? And he was like. I just broke up with my girlfriend Oof. and I was like, Oh damn. But in my mind, I was like, Dacromine, perfect like, opportunity. I was like, dude, why don't you just come back for a little while yeah. and we'll, we'll hang. And, uh, and he did, and he packed his shit and he moved back to New York and we started the, the process for creating the meatball What shop. year did he come back? Uh, he came back in 2000, probably late 2008. Okay. So there was like a two year process of dreaming, planning. Yeah. About a year, about a year and change. But like I had started, you know, putting together pieces and uh, really, you know, cr- like building the building the structure. So, so I I for for when I was in culinary school, when they offered the restaurant management program, I didn't have the money to do it. It was not cheap, and I'd already spent my life savings on culinary school, and I got financial aid for that as well. But they they offered a scholarship, a full boat scholarship to the management program. 
And I said, if I want to do this class, if I want to do this program, I've got to, I've got to get that scholarship. And so I created a, a concept called Homemade. And it was, it was all about a fully, fun, a fully formulated business plan for a restaurant. Uh, that was what the scholarship uh, was. And so I created this, this business plan called, Born, uh, called uh, Homemade. And it was basically <laughs> such a good concept. The fact that it's not done is crazy at this point. It's really, it hasn't been done yet. But it you was, still have the business plan? I probably do somewhere. I should. I should. I, I'm sure I do somewhere. Uh, but it's it, it, it was the it was the the preface to the meatball shop, and it was basically a burger joint where there would be you know you can choose what kind of protein you'd want, and you know all sorts of different proteins. But the catch to it was um, it was really focused around artisanal cheese, and so pairing really cool proteins in a burger format with artisanal cheeses oh, putting the focus on the cheese putting Smart. the focus on the yeah. cheese unique selling proposition yeah. and yep. no one does that and it's actually still hasn't been done so you know who knows maybe down the road cool. but the, i presented the 3, people that are listening to this <laughs> looking for an idea who knows i presented it to uh to the guys at french culinary and i won the scholarship and nice. so i got the scholarship and so that was really the preface for the meatball shop because it was like Choose what kind of meat you want. Choose what kind of how you want it served over a salad. Couple, you know, a couple of different kinds of buns that we were going to serve, and then choose what kind of cheese you want and your fixings. Yeah, and uh, and so you know that was kind of like the, the 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 foundation for meatball. And then when Daniel came back, we started really kicking around ideas. He was coming from a wholly totally different place. He wanted to do something around like Byzantine Empire inspired food. Like it was it was weird. We we had a hard time coming to a decision, but. The, the real sort of motivation for, for, for Meatball Shop was my family meal at Frank Restaurant every night or, every, you know, two to three nights a week. And I basically would order this dish there called the Rigatoni Ragu, which is the number one selling dish there. It's fucking amazing. It's Rigatoni pasta with meatballs and sausage in the best red sauce you've ever had in your life. So what I used to do is I'd say to the kitchen, hey, can I get the Rigatoni Ragu sans the Rigatoni? Give me a side of broccoli, a side of spinach, and a side of beets. And that was like what I did. A bunch of veggies. And, and, and protein. And saucy meatball. Saucy meatball. And my life at that point had already been driven towards, towards taking care of myself, yeah. towards wellness, like really thinking about what I put into my body. So Daniel and I were walking. He would come to the meatball. He would come to Frank Restaurant every night, late night. I'd get him nice and drunk, and we would just talk about the business. And one night I got out. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and we were walking north on 2nd Avenue. And we looked over to our left, and there was this place called Palm Frites there at one point. And it was this French fry spot. Tiny little hole in the wall, but there was always a line halfway down the block uh, late night. And so, you know, I looked over at Dan and I, and, and uh, everybody would always ask me what I was eating when I was just eating this bowl of, bowl of meatballs. And I'd say, oh, I'm just eating a bowl of meatballs. <laughs> and so I looked over at Dan and I said, you know, no one's done meatballs. What about meatballs? What if we just did a fucking, a little, a little spot, like kind of like B&H Diner on 2nd Avenue between 7th and 8th Street, just like a little spot. It's the down low meatball spot. Yeah. I, I want to take our break to thank our sponsors now because I think this is a good time to really start to unpackage. We'll come back and unpackage like how the plan came together, how you guys got the money and all that stuff. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work. Let's be honest. Not to mention it's time consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? Not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you 
pop menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back and uh, you were just starting to, to like unpackage like how the vision was coming together. And I mean, what, what was going from um, I mean, you shared like the origin of what you were thinking and the, the food you were eating and how that influenced the meatball shop. But as far as like from a business perspective, what was going through your mind? Why was a meatball shop the right move? Ground meat is economical. Yeah. Um, ground meat is economical. And so you can use the less uh, desirable cuts of meat of all different animals 
um, and grind it and and season it, and it's going to taste delicious. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of like a, a focus for us. We wanted to work with ground meat, um, and then just vegetables, and keep it really simple. And you know, the idea of customizability was a big one. No one had really, no one had actually taken a stab at doing a restaurant con, uh, a meatball concept. This is 2008. Before. Reminder for people as you're having these conversations, right? 2008, 2009. 2009. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and so we, we wanted to create something unique and something completely customizable. And, uh, you know, we were in a, we were in a, a recession. So we said, it's gotta be recession proof. So how can we create something that people aren't going to be afraid to walk through the doors? So if you make the meatballs $6 a bowl, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's economical. Yeah. And so that was sort of like the, we were thinking about volume, uh, you know, like obviously quality was a massive part of the plan for us. We wanted to use the best of, we didn't want to use, uh, filet, you know, like, like tenderloin and, 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 and New York strip and, and, and ribeye. We wanted to use like beef shoulder clod and like some of the bigger pieces of meat uh, that we can grind, but from the best farms and from the best resources. So quality was big deal for us, for our protein and our, and our produce. Um, but we just said, you know, we're going to make it inexpensive and we're going to go for volume. We're going to try to feed as many people as we can um, and, and, and really, really push the volume play in this business. So from understanding that from day one, how did you build the business to do volume? Uh, well, initially it was going to be a counter service restaurant. Okay. And when we built the restaurant, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea how to design a counter service restaurant. And so we opened up the doors to the meatball shop on February 9th of 2010 to 250 people online because our publicist really drummed, you know, they did a great job for us. And, uh, and it was an absolute nightmare. It was a complete fail. It did not work. We had not enough seats in the restaurant to service the amount of people. And uh, people were waiting online with, you know, trays of meatballs, nowhere to sit. And that night, Daniel and I looked at each other and I took the whole entire staff of the restaurant, which was counter staff. And I took them all and I said, ladies and gents, welcome to the world of full service dining. Uh, Changed the whole entire business model that night and... It was the best decision we made at the time. Yeah, let's shelf that. I want to come back to that, but I still want to. I think there's a lot to unpackage with uh, getting everything together, right? Like, you you have the vision, um, you, you know what you want to do. Uh, I mean, was there anything in the back of your mind just thinking like the power of just doing one thing really well? Like, was that because I I think you might have been ahead of the curve on that a little bit? Because I mean, I you mean, know, Chipotle's look, at, around at, that, at this point, and like there there's some things like that bubbling up. But was that? Look, you know, as as being a barman for so many years, people would always ask me my favorite burger. They would ask me my favorite sushi, my favorite slice of pizza. Uh, ramen started to really, really take shape in those days. And so, you know, it was like kind of like the same time as Momofuku. And people were asking me like, oh, what's my ramen spot? And, you know, I, w- I would say to myself, like, if somebody asked me where to go get a meatball hero or like, where's the best, you know, where's a great meatball spot or, you know, like I wouldn't know where to send them. I got to give my boys over at Eat It, um, Steve over at Eat It. Are you familiar with Eat It? No. It's an app that's only in New York City, and it does exactly ex- exactly what you explained. Is whatever you're in the mood for, you put the title of the the meal, like meatball or pizza or burger, and it has experts and like chefs from the city voting on their favorite spots and based off of where your geograph like where you are ge- geographically. It will tell you where the closest burger is. That's great. It's Eat It app. Only, it, it only on iOS, past guests in the show. And uh, the reason why I love this company is because 
they are putting the power back in the restaurant tour. You get food or you get customers if your food's good, you know, um, which is what it should be. <laughs> if, if it app. Like the number eight. Oh, eight. Got it. Got it. It app. It's got a, it. It's a pretty great tool. Um, if any of you guys are in New York City or going to New York, break out that app. Um, yeah. So, you know, people started to ask me those questions uh, and I, I really didn't, you know, I, I thought about the meatball sub, the meatball hero, the like New York iconic dish, right? Like, you know, everybody's like, oh, meatball shop, Italian food. And I'm like, no, no, no. Meatball shop's New York. Like it's New York at its truest. You know, it's, it's really, I grew up eating a meatball hero at my local pizza joint, right? Like that's typical for New York City people. You got a meatball sub at your deli, your local pizza place. Um, Anyway, we wanted to create the best meatball sandwich in the city. Yeah. And that was our goal. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I put in my, at that point, I'd saved up, I think, around $18,000. Daniel had twenty grand, And we begged, borrowed, and stealed from all, everyone in our family. And then I put the business plan, because once Dan and I started going, we started cooking these big meatball dinners at my apartment in Brooklyn for all of our friends yes. on Sundays. And um, we had these massive meatball dinners for a couple of months just to get feedback. And we built the model. We built the business plan. We built the menu. We, 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 uh, we had it all ready to go. And then I dropped the business plan in front of 20 regulars at the restaurant that I was at. And I think 12 of them cut me a check. Nice. And so we raised the money. How much did you say you needed at this point? What was the number you told yourself you needed? We told ourselves that we needed 400,000 bucks to do it. And it's very different today. 400,000 bucks gets you like a meatball. Um, But that's what we needed to get the restaurant open. And, um, And so Daniel and I built the restaurant ourselves. We found a location. I was very specific. You know, Daniel had been out of the city for a while, and I'd been living hard in the city. So I knew exactly where I wanted to put this restaurant. Um, I wanted it to be south of Houston, north of Delancey, east of Allen, and and west of Essex. Why that area? Because the the Lower East Side was on fire. Mm -hmm. What made it on fire? It was where everybody went to eat and drink. So, okay. So when you're looking for a spot that's on fire, like what are the elements you're looking for? Um, in terms of restaurant? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, you know, location, location, <laughs> location, yeah. right? Like you can have an amazing chef. You can have an amazing restaurant tour. You can have an incredible wine list or, or cocktail list or, you know, and that is great in the launching of a business. Uh, people will come, you know, they will. But for sustainability and longevity, location does really matter and you you know the hardest part in the restaurant business is to get new customers new guests it's like a very very difficult thing to do introduce it to new people right and the way like mcdonald's and wendy's and you know kentucky fried chicken do it is they advertise like you know they spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on advertising small little restaurants don't do that Mm -hmm. You know, now we have social media, which definitely makes it better, but it's really hard to advertise and market in the restaurant business unless you have a massive amount of cash. And so location is really sort of your marketing um, expense. So if you're going to take a 2,000 square foot space in the middle of nowhere, you're going to pay a lot less than if you take a 2,000 square foot space on Main and Main. And that is, is actually marketing money. And so... You know, I knew that I wanted to be in a good location. We found a little restaurant that was a little off the beaten path. It was like 
a block and a half away from Main on Main. And uh, the deal was so funny how we got the deal. I literally begged the broker who wanted to charge us 15 grand for the broker fee. And I, and I sat with him outside and I put on a show and I cried. <laughs> and I said, look, man, you got to just let us do it for 7,500, man. We want to do this deal so bad. <laughs> and uh, Daniel was there. It's like classic story. <laughs> and um, Was he trying to keep it in because he knew you were hamming it up intentionally? I, you know, I think he really did believe me. Um, <laughs> you know, I went out to LA initially to be an actor. And, and uh, you know, so I had a little bit of that, of that in me. But um yeah, so you know, I we we ended up getting the keys to the restaurant the night before Thanksgiving in two thousand and and nine, and um, Daniel and I did not hire any contractors. We did the restaurant ourselves. We literally put every single nail into the wood there. Uh, you know, we we laid the floor. We we did we did the whole thing. Um, I remember it was a it was a it was like a it was a noodle spot, and they had a walk station that 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 was up against the the walk in in the back. And when we pulled out the walk station, um, there was about a two inch, two and a half inch thick layer of grease caked on the wall that had been like petrified. They had never cleaned it ever, not once. And so I was there with a chisel and just like trying to shave it off that walk in. And they had, for some reason, they had uh, cemented the tables into the floor. So the, 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 the high top bar stools, I mean, bar tables were were cemented into the floor so i mean i remember just being down on the floor with a grinder for just days just trying just to grind grind, grind the tables out of this out did of you the, just like saw them off and then grind them down i basically hit them with a with no i, I grind them i i hit i i, I had to, they were steel <laughs> they were like yeah. thick steel table bases that they had literally poured concrete over that's crazy and so i just had to grind them off so i cut them with a grinder and then i just had to like grind them down um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was uh, it was amazing. I got a really cool story about how we got all the wood for the first few restaurants. I reached out to my my uh, my buddy and I said to him, hey, man, he was in the construction business residential. And I said, hey, do you have any old wood that's just lying around like old floor beams, you know, something, something that we can use? And he said, you know, it's interesting. Go over to the third street between second and Bowery. Uh, I know a guy who's demoing a townhouse there, a really old, cool townhouse, and they're throwing away a ton of the floorboards. They're completely gutting it. And so Daniel and I rented a truck, showed up, and sure enough, there were hundreds of these unbelievably beautiful, you know, 30, 20, 30 foot long or 20 foot long floor joists that were like three inches thick, old heart pine wood that they were just thrown into a dumpster. So we filled up this truck. My uncle's a carpenter. We took all the wood out to my uncle's shop in the Queens and he made all of the bars. He made the bar tops, all the table tops out of this wood for the first three restaurants. I was going to say, did you get enough wood for the first couple of restaurants? Yeah, we did. That's crazy. And the New York Post actually did a really cool piece on it. Um, What's going through my mind listening to you share this is just the power of you know, putting it out there, you know, what, if there, if there's a will, there's a way, right. In the, in, and you, if you ask yourself, how can I do this? That frontal lobe just kicks into front, like the hyper mode and just like creates, gets creative. Like who can I reach out to? Who can I ask? And when you start just like putting it out there, the universe just starts making things happen for you. Well, right? one thing that I'll also say, you know, cause I, I, when you asked about that quote early on, you know, I believe the business of business of relationships and foundation of relationships is trust. But one other piece of advice that seems kind of obvious, but it's just not, is when in doubt, ask for help. Ask for help as much as you can. 
I, I am not afraid to ask for help. I ask for help as a CEO of companies, as a CEO of my company now. I surround myself with people that can help me, mm. not, for, not people that I can tell what to do. Yeah. I look for more people to help me than for me to utilize as a tool. Yeah. And ultimately, they're going to help the business as we're all a big toolbox for the success of a business. But I want to be surrounded by, with people that can help me. And, I, and, and so what I would just also say for anybody listening is like, if you're struggling, ask for help as much as you can. Yeah, that's something I'm trying to be better about. Honestly, just recently, I started putting some of the stuff I need and want out. Just being like, this is what I want to do. I can't do it alone. I, I'm going to need help. And I'm already starting to get people to come back uh, and to like see how they can help. And the truth is people want to help. We need to help. It's part of our, our need to be seen. I think that's one of the reasons why people are so depressed nowadays is because we used to be tribal and communal and family, family and tribe, family and community, right? For tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, that's how we were. And then the past hundred years were government and market. We don't need each other anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, we, we are more and more independent than we've ever been. Right. But at the same time, I think, I don't know if that's a good thing because we're hardwired to, to have people depend on us to, add value to the tribe to have our purpose. And it's harder and harder to find purpose. If you can be someone's purpose, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. if you can be somebody who needs help, then you're going to, you're going to make somebody feel great that they, well, that, that they can help. I know? also think that like asking for someone's help is one of the most empowering things a, a, a leader can do, right? Like asking for someone else's help is empowering other people to feel needed yeah. and appreciated. You know, and I, I think the the most successful leaders and restaurateurs I've found is aren't aren't the people who are the most impressive as far as what they can do. It's the people who see the 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 talent and the the how other people are impressive and go, wow, you're way better at this than I am. You do it. Like I'll just get out of your way. And it's finding all those people in all those different verticals and then surrounding yourself. You know, I think the true key to leadership is the ability to be authentic yeah. and. Um, and humble and really probably most importantly is um giving people something to believe in mm. right you what know? is a, what is a leader one my, my my one of my professors asked me this and he said that he thinks a leader is a dealer of hope right yeah what were you going to say i think i overspoke you no no i mean i think that that's really it right giving people something to believe in and like when you can be convicted you know like convincing enough um, because you believe in it as with every cell in your body, like every business that I've launched are, has been completely authentic to me. Every single business has a story, not a story that I made up a story that's real. Every business that I've created, I've put my blood, heart, sweat, and tears into, and the people that I've worked with along the way have believed the story. Yeah. I, and the, the way I put that is your business is an extension of you and who you are. And when you do that, how much easier is it to show up to your business mm-hmm. when it is an extension of you, yeah, right? Um, versus a concept or something that you have to, you know, put the the smile on, or, the, or you're always hopefully wearing a smile. But you know what I mean? You have to just kind of roll into a concept, a theme. Yeah. How hard is that, right? Um, so, I mean, we there's still so much story to tell. Uh, so, you guys obviously open. Uh, it's a huge success. You you were originally a QSR or a counter service. You you switched to the the full service. In today's age, I I almost encourage more and more people to consider moving away from full service because of the labor expenses that are associated in this market. Um, and I think the future is very automated. Unfor- like some people look at that as a scary thing. 
I think it could be a good thing because it's going to free up human bandwidth. Um, would you? What are your thoughts on that now? Like, if would you do a full Depen- service it, now? Or? You know, for me, I I understand the business of 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 QSR and fast casual. I really do. I understand it. Me as a hospitality focused individual, when and if I get back into the restaurant business, you know, a few years down the road after I, you know, work on this project that I'm working on, um, I won't do a QSR. People used to ask me what I do for a living, and I used to tell them I'm a memory maker. It's really, really hard to make memories in a counter service model. I love making people happy. I love treating people to an experience that they can remember forever. Hopefully that experience is good. Sometimes you don't always win, right? But, you know, I I believe in the restaurant industry as an experiential uh, moment in time that you have to make an impact on somebody's life to really give them, uh, you know, you know, people come into the restaurant with problems, right? That like... It's if it, as small as I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, but typically people walk into a restaurant after a day's wor- a days of work or a long week and they come in on a brunch and they really just want to like enjoy themselves and people's sense of enjoyment uh, fluctuate and are wide varied, right? Like some people really need super high, you know, high, uh, 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 like, like really high attention. Um, and, and others just want to, you know, you can sit down next to them and look them, you know, put, put your hand on their shoulder and, and say, Hey, sit back, relax, and let me take care of this for you. You know, like you guys don't even look at the menu. I'm going to make this an amazing experience. Um, and so I believe in that. I believe in that at my core. It is what I love to do. It is what I've done for so many years. And so though fast casual, I totally understand for where we are today and like the potential of automation down the road. And But, you know, I just believe if it, it, there's two different kinds of restaurateurs. There's the ones that want to get rich and then the ones that are really, really passionate. And sometimes you have the ones that want to get rich and are passionate. But it's very, very difficult to stay passionate um, if you really only care about the P&L. Yeah. You know. Which type of restaurant tours were you and Daniel going into the meatball shop? Daniel and I were very different. <laughs> Daniel, by the way, is one of the most passionate guys I know, but he cares way more about the bottom line than I did. Mm-hmm. I was really passionate about creating something great, and I really wanted to – I didn't – I didn't – you know – when before Dan and I went on, opened up the meatball shop together, we actually took a trip to the White Mountains in New Hampshire, a camping trip, five days, intense trek. And when we were driving up there, I said, you know, what's your goal here? Like, what do you want to do? And he looked at me straight face and said, I want to be a billionaire. And I, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, you know what, man, I want to be able to serve people and, and, and make people happy and have a house upstate with a dog and my wife and some, and some kids and be able to be comfortable. And, you know, knock on wood, man, like I pulled that off, you know, I really did. And and that's so interesting. I haven't thought about that in a long time. But, um, you know, Dan is one of the hardest workers I know. He's one of the smartest guys I know. He's definitely the best chef I know. And um, he is adamant on creating super sound business. Um, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, you know. Yeah. So you guys in five years went from one location to five locations three six, years three years one three. location to five locations to six yeah. six locations mm-hmm. holy crap um reflecting back at that time i mean what were what were the things that you did right to to give yourself that opportunity to scale and then 
what were the lessons you learned about scaling? Because, I mean, there's always curveballs that are thrown. When you think it's going to go a certain way, and then it always almost never goes the way you think it is. Did that happen to you guys? Yeah, well, I also want to say one other thing before I answer that question. Um, entrepreneurs and business leaders, anyone in business, we are always winging it. Yeah. You're always winging it. Maybe you know how to do it you know, because of what you did the last time, but there's always going to be something new and something um, scary and something that you're going to have to overcome and questions that you're not going to know the answers to. Uh, that is what separates the entrepreneurs from the non-entrepreneurs, the ones that are willing to experience that, you know, willing to deal with an overwhelmingly. Just start. Uh, yeah, just just like just will it, being able to manage high levels of stress yeah. and being cool with it and powering through, right? And so any leader that tells you that he's not winging it at least 25% of his time is lying. Uh, we're all winging it. And so if anybody's thinking about stepping into the world of being an entrepreneur or opening up a restaurant, whatever it is, like, and you're like, oh, I don't know enough, like, by the way, no one does. Yeah. Um, it's just that simple, right? It's just that simple. So, uh, you know, we, we opened up that restaurant. We had no idea what the hell we were doing. We became successful very, very quickly. People fell in love with the meatball shop. It was a massive hit. We were within six to eight months, we were cooking meatballs on you know, Jay Leno, Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, Today's Show, Good Morning America, every single local and, and national news broadcast. Uh, you know, we had, it was just crazy. We paid back our investors in six months. We raised another bunch of cash in, within the first year. And then we just said, you know, we're just going to take this as it comes. And we started opening up more restaurants. And What's your average ticket? Then it was about 26 bucks. 26 bucks. And I think I saw on, um, uh, consumed you guys were projecting to do two million you were in a, each location was doing double that right yeah well so we were projecting to doing under two million at the oh, meatball wow. shop and we did 3.8 million in the year first year wow and uh it was a, just a massive home run it was a major major home run i mean look meatball shop is not what it used to be uh meatball shop is still considered one of new york city's greatest all-time restaurants i mean i wore this hat on my way down here and somebody was like is that the meatball shop like talk about brand recognition you know meatball shop changed a lot of things in the restaurant industry yeah. in and, and i'm not just talking about in new york and i'm not saying this to, to pat myself on the back i'm saying that we disrupted the restaurant business daniel and i disrupted the restaurant business and you know it, it's similar to like your favorite band right like you grow up you listen to this band you're just like your favorite fucking band and then like out of nowhere boom they just like stop playing music together and you're like what the hell happened and you know someone says oh yeah the drummer and the lead singer just couldn't get along you know <laughs> like they just didn't see eye to eye and that's what happened to dan and i you know we became successful and we were making big decisions constantly and Dan, you know, is a very analytical, logistical thinker, and I am a very creative brand style thinker. Gary Vaynerchuk will call you in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Vaynerchuk is the lead investor in my new business. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I am very focused on, on brand and the guest or customer experience. Um, you know, I used to say, when, when we would we would have meetings uh, as you know full staff meetings and we'd start the meeting with this big p l breakdown you know specifically management meetings too but a big p l meeting 
and uh, everybody would just get bummed out because you know whenever you're talking about a PL, you always got to start with the bad you know um, just because the restaurant business is so hard it's just so hard to make money and so when you go when you do a PL um, you know review it, it tends to be difficult right you know how can we do, how can we be better here even if you're doing well how can we shave off you know what can we do to make these where can we make and so I used to say to the guys, you know, my partners and uh, and the leaders of the companies, I would say, you know, guys, maybe we shouldn't start with the PL meeting, or maybe we should do PL meeting uh, in a separate meeting. Because if you think for one second that anybody walking through the doors as a guest of this restaurant, if you think for a second that any one of them have ever thought about what the fucking PL looked like in this place, you're mistaken. You're setting the tone of these meetings with the PL. Yet the guests could give a flying shit about the PL. Mm-hmm. They couldn't care less. And if the if the if the energy of the staff is going to be dropped down because we're talking PL, well then we've got to figure something else out because we need this, this these teams to be fired up, you know. And because uh, the guest does not care about the PL. So how do you let the the employee know about the PL? Because you want to let them know about the numbers. Right? So when's the right time for that? You know, I think that you have separate PL meetings, right? Like, so PL meetings are obviously very, very important. And I don't think everybody needs to be a part of the PL meeting. Um, the PL is absolutely integral, right? You, you got to know what you're selling. You got to know what you're paying for it. And you got to know what it looks like at the bottom. You just, you got to know those things. Yeah. However, if it becomes the focus, if it becomes the lead player in the game, all the decisions you make are based on that piece of paper the chances of long-term success are nil because we're in the restaurant business it's not inspiring you know it's it's important but it's not inspiring and um i mean we're in the business of creating you know experiences so i mean i told i think i definitely get the the so what i'm saying is is that 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 was ultimately when when things started to, to 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 get a little funky between dan and i and I knew that it was going to be tough because we were not seeing eye to eye and we were having a hard time making decisions together. And it was really painful. This is 2015-ish when this, or is it 2013. 13? This is 13, yeah. Okay. 2013 to early 2014 when I knew that things were not going to work out long term. And, um, and so, you know, I had, made a, I had made a deal with those guys and said, look, you know what? This is hard for me. This is a really, really difficult um decisions have had to come to but i don't think i i i feel like i am the culture guy at the company and the culture of the meatball shop is set we know how we walk we know how we talk we know we we're like we're loved by so many i don't want to fight with you guys anymore on these large-scale decisions that i just don't seem to agree with you on and so i think it makes sense for daniel to run the company and me to zoom out so that i can go create another brand which i think i'm more passionate about let me let me go and do that and i'll sell you guys my equity or the majority of my equity i'll still stay on as advisor you could still tap me for all sorts of things but i want to go create something new again and i want to get out of this unfortunate place that my best friend and i are in yeah so i mean my timeline's a little weird because i think i i watched uh, the first two episodes of consume just kind of to kind of you know see what the the story was from their perspective the producers of cnbc or whoever mm-hmm. made it um and it seemed like, I mean, I, what you're sharing now is kind of like where it was in the second episode of just like, you guys had different visions. Um, you wanted to take the money. He didn't want to take the money cause he was afraid of giving up equity and basically decision-making 
that was kind of the the core of it. What what was missing from what I just shared? Like, what was in your opinion? Was it the? I mean, the- that was a huge that was a huge deal for me. You know that that piece right there, where I knew that we had an opportunity to change our lives financially by mitigating risk and bringing on these major players who were going to roll out the meatball shop for us. And I couldn't convince Daniel, um, and you know that the meatball shop. I couldn't convince Daniel to want to take the deal. And the board was essentially Daniel's brother, his brother's best friend, and his brother's best friend's best friend. And so I was not in a good position there to, to convince those guys. Uh, we had a, a real hard, very insanely amazing offer on the table that these guys wanted to do. And it's a real shame that we didn't. Yeah. Because well, with those offers also come the pressure too, right? The pressure to perform, right? Um, but I interrupted you. What were you going to say? I was going to say that, you know, we should have taken that deal, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, but we didn't. And- I get both arguments. I get both sides. I understand where he's coming from because in his mind, he's saying to himself, if we take the money, then there's all this pressure to scale and we don't have the people in the systems ready to scale. And what we, what makes us special now, we won't be able to replicate because, because, um, we, we haven't recreated ourselves and others. We, we haven't fine tuned the systems. I think that was his argument, but I also understand where you're coming from where like, listen, we don't get opportunities like this all the time. You know, we got to strike while the iron's hot and like, we might not, we might not get a sweetheart deal like this again or whatever. And you also need cash flow to scale. And with that cash flow, you can attract onto yourself the people that you need and the resources you need. You know, the lesson I learned there, and I would just say this to any entrepreneur or anybody that wants to be in the entrepreneurial seat, anybody listening to just take this advice. When you get an opportunity to take money off the table, fucking do it. Period. And done. That's it. Bottom line. That's what you do. So when you say you take money off the table, you mean... Um, mitigate take- your risk. If you can bring somebody into the company that's a private equity fund that has 45 other restaurant groups under their portfolio with massive resources, you know, like, I mean, there's no there's no way that those guys weren't going to be able to help us with systems and processes yeah. and all those things. Those guys were built to do that. Was that part of the conversation? Because they didn't include that in the episode. How much did they edit out? Oh, yeah. That was like, <laughs> hey, man, we're going to scale you guys. So that's Wait. the that's the thing you got to keep in mind, though, is like you're not just getting the cash. You're getting the people and the resources. You're getting everything and you still own 40% of the company. Yeah. Is that where you guys going to split it 2020 or was it 40, 40? It was like probably at that point they wanted to buy 60% of the company. Daniel and I both owned even, you know, even Steven, not we, we had, we owned each of us owned 33% and then we had raised money for 33%. So we, Daniel and I owned 33%. So it would have been like 15, 15, 10 or something like that, um, that we would still own, but you know, millions of dollars in the bank personally, uh, and millions of dollars on the balance sheet to scale the company. Yeah. And what's, you're getting 40% of a much bigger pie right which is the other thing you have to yeah. consider i get so frustrated when i think about that sorry i mean i'm wearing the hat and i'm rubbing no, it no, in no, 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 no 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 i love <laughs> i love the meatball shop and by the way you know you know when i took a step back from meatball shop daniel and i took a number of years off of our friendship which was devastating for me because he is my brother he saw me through a lot of shit and uh, in 2019 daniel and i rekindled our friendship and we're we're right back to where we started before we opened the meatball shop and uh we're best friends again and i'm um, glad to hear that know. did adam rosenbaum have anything to do with that adam rosenbaum is one of the best guys on the planet he's running <laughs> the meatball shop now and he really brought the two of us he really was an advocate of us two getting our friendship back yeah, together we talked about that a little bit when i had the opportunity to talk to him um so 
I mean, I'm, I'm loving the detail you're getting into this. I mean, any advice, I mean, you started this conversation with talking about the power of relationships and how business is all about relationships. You go into business with one of your best friends. Um, what did you learn about relationships during this time? being somebody who puts so much emphasis on relationships. You know, there's a great book I'm reading called The Four Agreements. Oh, I've heard good things. If anybody's looking for a great book, you know, The Four Agreements would be, if I had I read and implemented The Four Agreements in, you know, because Daniel's not at fault here. I'm not at fault here. We were at fault. We were young guys in business for the first time, and we both thought we were right. And we both took things personally, and we both said mean, nasty things to each other. And we both made assumptions on what other the other one was capable of doing or not doing, and um, and we both did our best. To- you didn't just say mean nasty things. You I mean you also did it on public TV. You know, like you put you aired your laundry out. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, did that affect your? Did that have an impact? Or the fact that it was public did that hurt things? No, I don't think so. You know, I I think for us, you know, we. No one had ever really depicted two best friends going into business and what, what can happen, you know, in a successful situation because the meatball shop was a major success. I was going to say, even though you didn't take the whatever 50 million, whatever it was, you still sold the business. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm sure you sold it for a pretty penny. Like well, we sold, we sold, we sold a percentage of the business, but we, we, we put it this way. We did not do that as well as we, we, we could have that by, by a long shot. But even your failure in your eyes is a success in most people's yeah, eyes. Yeah, because I took, I ended up taking money out, you know, um, I, and, and it's not about the money. If for me, it was about access and ability to do more. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, coming from a street kid to where I was now with the, like a master class and how to scale a restaurant company and, I just thought I had what it took to do it again. And I knew I wanted to. And so when I sold my equity at Seymour, a meatball shop, I then started creating this idea for this new concept called Seymour's. When did that start going into motion? As soon as I knew that I was going to step down from meatball shop is when I, I always wanted to open up a seafood restaurant. You know, Daniel and I were going to open up a little spot called Fish Taco right next to the meatball shop. Uh, I, uh, I've been passionate about seafood for a very long time. And so I started thinking about Seymour's probably in 2013, but I really started putting pen to paper in 2014 when I knew that my deal was going to happen with Meatball Shop. And you already mentioned that like you saw yourself being a better suit or better suited for going out in biz dev, like creating opportunities, creating concepts. That's my, that's my, that's my sweet spot. Really, really thinking through restaurant concepts and just brands in general understandings probably the years of growing up in new york city paying close attention to lifestyle listening to people i'm a good listener i I really being behind the bar for so many years i really paid attention to what people wanted when you sat at the bar with me as your bartender you never saw a menu ever i never put a menu in front of you when you were eating with me because i just kind of sussed you up and figured out what you wanted and created the experience for you exactly how you only could have wished it to happen. But, uh, you know, Seymour's was something that I started working on. And um, I, I, off the back of the success at Meatball Shop, I just knew that I was going to be able to have momentum to get this thing off the ground. So I, I left Meatball Shop as a, as a day-to-day guy uh, in 2014. And in June of 2015, I opened up Seymour's on the corner of Broom and Mulberry Street with no partners by myself to an amazing success. And I felt, obviously, it was 
I felt super lucky um, that I was able to do another restaurant, totally different concept, totally different vibe, cuisine, everything. Um, but but hit it but hit it out of the park, and people immediately were banging down my door trying to work with me. And that was five restaurants you grew that to five locations. I grew Seymour's to six, six locations. Yeah, six. Um, and uh, you know, but I knew like there was a mentor of mine. Um, who was running Le Pen Quotidienne. His name is Jay Wainwright. And he came, I, he was one of the first guys I told to about Seymour's in his office like a year prior. I sort of drew the concept on the back of a napkin for him. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. You know, what do you think? And he said, it sounds great, kid. Go get it. Be careful with seafood. Uh, and I invited him a year later to the opening night of Seymour's um, on Broom Street. And he walked in and he was like, holy shit, you did this exactly how you said you were going to do it. And then two days later, he sent me an email saying, I want to leave where I'm working now and I want to help you grow this brand. Like what you've done is fucking special. And um, I said, you know, I was obviously completely honored and humbled by that email because uh, this guy is a guy that I really, you know, very, very smart man in the restaurant business. 12 years, my senior, just like very smart guy. I said, look, man, you know, I just got out of a tough partnership. <laughs> I'm not ready to step into a new one. You yeah. know, I need time. I need time. And he was relentless and he did not want to give up on that. And, uh, and I knew, I knew partnering with Jay was going to be hard because he had been doing it for, he'd been owning and operating restaurants. He founded the brand cozy. Okay. Um, and then he left cozy after he took it public after running that for 10 or 12 years and joined the Pan Cotidian as the president and all these things. I said, how can I, how can this guy work for me? It's impossible. It won't work out. Um, but I knew that I love creating brands and I knew that I was going to want to create more. And so I said to Jay, look, about six or eight months after he and I was, you know, lightly talking about it, I said, I'd be willing to do this with you. Um, I would make you the CEO. I would be the president. And we would grow this thing together for like three years, four years. And then I would go out and create another brand and you would scale the company. And uh, he said, are you sure you want to do that? Because if you make me the CEO, you're going to give me the control. And I said, yeah, I think I am. But well, at this point, you know yourself well enough to know what really lights you up. And it's not running the business. It's, it's creating the business. Right. Yeah. And so that's what we did, man. We did that. We raised a shit ton of money and we opened up, you know, five more restaurants together and in 2019 we started i started having a conversation with jay about me moving on to another brand and i knew i wanted to do something in wellness because wellness gave me the life i live today um, it is the cornerstone and the foundation of my success fitness nutrition mindset without that stuff you know i wouldn't be married with kids which is the love you know my absolute passion uh in in my personal life obviously my wife is you know, we've been together forever and ever and we have these two wonderful kids and I'm a good dad and I, I wouldn't have that stuff had I not gotten sober or gotten introduced to fitness, nutrition and mindset. So I knew that wellness was in my path as an entrepreneur and I knew that I wanted to do something with it. And so I created this brand called Creatures of Habit and Creatures of Habit uh, was going to be a restaurant. Um, when did you create that brand, Creatures of Habit? I started, I, I came up with the name Creatures of Habit in late 2018. Got it. And um, 
And I knew that I wanted to open up a restaurant that was a wellness restaurant with a vibe because I, you know, healthy restaurants in New York are like tend to not be cool, right? Like you're not like, I want to go hang out there. It's like typically like very hippied out or, you know, uh, you know, or, or, you know, like sweet greens, QSR style where you're not going for a meal, you're going there for a quick, but you know, a quick salad. And so I said, I want to create a, a night part for the, for the sweet green goer. I want to create a, an evening experience. We would also serve lunch, but I'd really focus on evening um, dinner. And I want to create an experience for these people that they'll never forget with healthy food. Yeah. I want to tap the brakes real quick. Cause I, I want to unpack. Just, I'm really excited. I want we're obviously going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. You mentioned something that is, I just got to pull back a layer on it. Cause it's just making me itch. You said that you became, you got a master's in scaling business. Um, I just want to get one more nugget out of you about scaling business. I mean, obviously we know we need systems, we need processes, we need culture, you know, we need our mission, core values, things like this. That's everybody knows that stuff. What don't most people know? What is the mastery that you picked up on scaling business that most people don't know? And then I really want to unpackage, um, what you're doing now. I think the, 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 the key to it is being able to make decisions. Being able to, you know, fear stands in the way of success most of the time, whether fear of failure or fear of success. Fear is really the roadblock for many, many people. Um, And uh, when you're able to look fear in the face and laugh and make decisions, whether you think you're going to, whether it's super duper risky or when you can make a decision that if you, if you win, the the reward is, is so incredible and if you lose, it could be over. Being able to make those decisions is what defines truly successful entrepreneurs. So what is the internal dialogue when you have to make a decision? And you might have some fear. Maybe like a little, I mean, it's there. You're laughing in the face, but you're still kind of hesitant of it. Like, what do you, what's the internal dialogue that you, you give yourself? In order to really win, the fight is going to almost take you to the death. And that's the truth. It's rare that you hear a success story in business of the founder or the, or the CEO or whatever being like, oh man, you know, we just had, it was just win after win. It was easy. You know, we just, it's most of the time it's like, oh man, we almost, we almost went out of business five times. Yeah. We had to beg for money. We had to beg the bank to give us money. We had to beg all of our friends. We like, you know, we slept in the restaurant. We slept at the business. We, you know, it's like you have to be willing to fight to the death. And uh, <laughs> it sounds dramatic, but it's true. You know, and so like that's the dialogue you're, you're telling yourself. Yeah, I'm basically saying to myself, you know, I'm in it right this second, right? Like I am the leader of this company and it's a lot easier to not take big swings and risks and take small little bites and see if this decision makes or that decision makes or say F it and spend a quarter million dollars in one channel for my new business. You yeah. know what? I want to learn about who my customer is and where they are purchasing yeah and i'm not gonna learn by spending 20 you know 10 grand here 10 grand there if i spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in one arena i'm gonna learn everything so you spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars to start 
up creatures of habit. No, no. I'm just you. I'll use it. I'm, I'm just using this as an example. So like creatures of habit has now become it's a digital wellness brand. So it's no longer a restaurant. And I'll get to that. I'll tell you exactly what happened. But like it's it's in the world of direct to consumer. Did it's a digital brand. And so there's a number of ways you can sell products in digital. Right. You can sell through uh, paid social media, paid media, affiliate email media, uh, affiliate through influencer, um, affiliate through uh, 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 editorial. Um, uh, You can do email marketing, direct response. You can do podcast marketing. Um, You can just do pay to play influencer. Um, You can do, you know, you can do outdoor advertising, you know, billboards, cabs, buses, you know, all that stuff. Um, there's, there's a number of different channels, uh, that, that you can, you can try to sell your product through. And it's really, really hard to get a read on them unless you invest, right? So you need to be capitalized, heavily capitalized, and you need to have the balls to make these big decisions. (laughs) And I, for, for better or for worse, I'm just down to take these risks, and make these decisions and like not allow fear. I was waiting for you to say it because I have the balls. <laughs> I was going to say it, but I said, you know what? I'm going to just be a little bit more PG on this. I would have been okay but, with it. But, you know, like, so, but, but just going back. So I basically, with Creatures of Habit, I wanted to create this restaurant. I knew that I knew exactly what it was going to be. I built the whole brand. I had the sickest menu. I found the sickest location. I'm negotiating. It's February 2020. You know, I'm, uh, you know like 5,000 square foot, one level warehouse structure, center of Williamsburg, eight skylights, 20 foot high ceilings, like my dream. And I'm negotiating with these guys and they really want to do a deal with me and I want to do a deal with them. And then March comes around and we start hearing these grumblings about this virus. Mm. I've got all my investors lined up and uh, second week of March hits, hadn't done the deal. And we get hit with this news. Yeah, people get a little conservative yeah. when there's a pandemic. Right. So I and I and I was investing a quarter million of my own money into the business. And so I called up the investors and I said to everyone, Hey guys, look, you know, I'm not gonna invest my money and I certainly am not gonna take yours. Let's push pause. Yeah. And so I pushed pause, packed up a big bag, took my wife and kids to our upstate house and said, you know, let's see what how this thing pans out. No one knew what was gonna gonna happen. And, you know, we were up there for a month and we said, okay, well, we should go back down to the city and pack a bigger bag. And we packed a bigger bag. And I said, man, I don't know about the restaurant business. You know, it was terrifying for the for Meatball Shop and Seymour's. And I was on the phone with those guys constantly trying to figure out, you know, how I can be of service. And anyway, I hired an executive coach to work with me because I just didn't know if the restaurant business was going to work for me going yeah. forward. So, so one of the things I'm really excited about talking to you and something that I think is wrong with the restaurant industry is that we kind of only see one way to do business, right? Like there's like the, your, your, you know, cost of goods sold, your, your, your prime cost, right? And we get 10% profit and that's how we do things. And this is the only way to make money. There's so many, there's so many different ways to make money. And I think we just need to start seeing our industry different, learning from other industries, like what you're doing now um, and just using other mediums to get the word out, creating a brand, 
a, a like a lifestyle brand around our restaurant and having the restaurant just be an appendage of something greater. You know, I'm seeing this more and more. I think of uh, Jennifer DeRozier's up in New Hampshire, Laney and Lou, where like they have it's like a it's a very health driven concept. But really, what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to create this greater overarching brand, right? Um, that it could be a million different things, events and all this stuff. I just don't think restaurant tours think like that. We're kind of stuck in the past. And I think that we need to start listening to the other podcasts, right? Like, like entrepreneurial podcasts that are outside of the restaurant, like get out of the, out, get outside of the restaurant industry and start listening to what other people are doing in, in new, newer verticals. And how can I start with a newer vertical and reverse engineer that and have that be the moneymaker supporting the restaurant, you know, like, and I think that you see it that way. You're saying, well, I don't necessarily have to start with the restaurant. I can start with developing this brand and generate cash flow around this brand and then use that brand to be a launching pad for what I want to do later. Pretty much. Yeah. So get into that strategy. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I guess I'll just backtrack a tiny bit. Um, so I, when I, when I created Creatures of Habit, the idea was it was going to be this amazing, awesome restaurant that was going to be my home base, my headquarters, but I was not going to scale the restaurant because I learned that I did not love scaling day-to-day restaurant operations. I just did not lo- love that. I liked it and I could do it, but it wasn't something that I loved. And so I was going to use the restaurant as this community marketing hub for an, a, a line of consumer packaged goods. So I was going to incubate products in the restaurant that we were going to put on the shelf and see if people were grabbing them to, to walk home with as they were walking out of the restaurant. And whatever whatever was sticky, I was going to put money behind to launch this CPG company called Creatures of Habit. And so that's what inspired what Creatures of Habit is today. But yes, a brand holds a lot more value than a business in my opinion, because brand can seep into many different verticals. Brand is, you know, like, you know, when you think about Nike, for instance, right? When you think about Apple, you know, like it, it, it can touch anything it wants to touch. You wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, a Nike do a partnership with a restaurant. You wouldn't be surprised to see Nike, um, you know, at a, at a, at a skydiving competition, like Nike can do anything they want. Apple can integrate with anybody that they want. They can partner with anyone and everyone because everybody loves the brands. They know the brands, they love the brands, and it's always going to make sense no matter what they do. And so that's why I love brands so much. And so anyway, so when, when I, when I took a step back and I started thinking about what my next, you know, five to 10 years was going to look like, I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to create a brand that is authentic to me that I can do a number of different things with, that I can tell stories with, and that I can help people with at scale. And uh, that's when I created Creatures of Habit to, to, to you know, as, as what it is today. And it's, uh, it's a wellness and lifestyle brand. And, um, you know, I told you early on that, that, that those guys that, you know, took me under their wing and taught me how to eat and how to be physical and, you know, get my life together. The first thing they told me to eat was oatmeal. (laughs) I picked up on that when I mentioned, I was like, oh, he's sticking with the oatmeal. It's it's great. Do you like oatmeal? (laughs) I do love oatmeal. You do? Yeah, man. Do you love oatmeal? I do love oatmeal. I eat it regularly. I made you actually a little, uh, I made you some of the overnight, overnight blueberry banana oats. Nice. So Michael is going to his refrigerator right now, uh, and he <laughs> he's pulling some oats out. Here, I'm gonna just do this. So you can try it this way. <laughs> gonna be able to sample this. This is my favorite way to eat it. 
I did notice that your mic is a little better at picking up noise further away. So you can probably, if you want to talk, you can probably still hear. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing it. So this is one of my favorite ways to, uh, to eat the protagonist. And I think you're going to love it because it's an addictive flavor profile. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I wanted to make sure you had some while you were here. Nice. Thank you, man. So this is the, uh, this is the blueberry banana. The blueberry banana. Blueberry banana. Overnight oats. This is my favorite way to eat it. And, uh, yeah, so I created this oatmeal. Um, you know, I've been eating oatmeal every day for 17 years. How good is that? So good. I've been eating oatmeal every day for 17 years um, in the morning as my first meal of the day. Uh, I eat it either as a pre-workout meal if I'm working out uh, if I if I'm working out a bit a little bit later in the day. I'll eat it as my first meal of the day if I'm not working out in the morning, or I'll eat it as a post-workout meal. And I've been adding so many different things to my oatmeal over the years. Um, I add protein powder and I add uh, pumpkin seeds, chia seeds, flax seeds, pink Himalayan salt. And then on the side, I've got my probiotic. I've got my digestive enzymes, my vitamin D3, my omega-3 fatty acids. Um, And so I said, I am going to, I know this is crazy coming from the world of restaurants, but I am going to create the best, most functional, delicious instant oatmeal on the market today, period. It's good, man. I'm <laughs> chewing away over here. It's, it's really good. Um, so if somebody is listening to this, and honestly, this is really, this strikes a vein with me because, or strikes a chord with me because I see myself taking the same path that you're taking where eight years ago, I was like, I'm not in the position to open a restaurant. Like I'm $200,000 in debt from becoming a commercial pilot. I grew up in the restaurant industry, but I was like, I'm listening to all these people. I used to listen to Gary Vaynerchuk. I used to like all these podcasts about people just starting with a podcast. I was like, why can't I just go out and learn and become a lifestyle brand of being just like a student of life, going out there learning and like pulling all these nuggets from these different restaurant tours and like developing a persona that I want to be and like having people identify with that. And then creating this podcast to be the launching pad for something else later. And I think more people don't think like that. So if they want to take this path that you took, like, what's your advice for them? Don't be afraid to change your mind. Don't be afraid to pivot. There's never going to be a right time. It's not, not everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. But if you can't sleep at night because you have an idea that you want to bring to fruition and bring to life that you think is going to make an impact in other people's lives, the only way to go and the only way to do it is to do it. There's no other way. It's not going to be delivered on a platter. There's never going to be the perfect time where the stars are going to align. You're never going to have enough money. You got to just really go with your gut and just start taking the steps. There was some strategy, though, because you started two years ago with the podcast, right? So was that a part of Creatures of Habit, born or raised? Or born or made. made? Thank no, you. Born it, or was made. Not, it was not part of the plan. I did the podcast just because I love doing podcasts. Okay. I love being on podcasts. I love talking to people. And it's a great way to network, um, and it's a great tool to have, right? Like the amount of learnings that I've had on being a host on a podcast, um, and the amount of people that I've had the the ability to connect with because yeah. of the podcast. 
you know, um, but I think just, you know, the idea of, you know, there's, there's only one way to get to have, and you got to, Oh, damn. <laughs> it happened at the end of the interview, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys can hear the drill in the background, we'll power, power through it. Oh, man. Son of a bitch. <laughs> it happens, man. Um, I've had worse things happen. Is it okay? You think we yeah, can- yeah. Oh, okay, it's cool. fine. It's fine. So, you know, want plus do equals have. You can't just want, right? And typically, in order to do something, you have to want it. Yeah. Unless you're really drunk. <laughs> Was there anything we haven't discussed up to this point that you were hoping to discuss before we get to the speed round? I mean, I think we've covered a lot, yeah. man. I, you know, I would just put a plug out there for Creatures of Habit. I launched it in August, August 26th. It's a brand new company. We're doing amazing oatmeal um, in a bunch of different flavors with a massive amount of, of value. Um, and uh, I, I launched a lifestyle, uh, uh, an apparel company with it. So Creatures of Habit also not only does instant oats, uh, but we do, uh, we, we've created this really cool line of apparel um, to wear. And that's Creatures, man. It's not like traditional oats. It's like very smooth and like the texture is different. It doesn't, it, like, I don't, my mind isn't telling me this is oatmeal. Mm-hmm. It tastes like oatmeal, but it's the, the consistency. It's almost, is it, is it pureed? Um, no, so so it's actually so that's the overnight style, um, and I kind of like it a little looser than thicker. So I always add a little bit more almond milk to it. Um, but the functionality in that bowl right there, I mean, seven thousand IU's of vitamin D three, three hundred milligrams of omega three fatty acids. One of the best probiotics you can get your hands on. Digestive enzymes to help your GI and your microbiome. Um, Thirty grams of high quality plant based protein per serving. Um, gluten-free oats it's completely plant-based allergen-free anyone can have it it's fucking awesome it's delicious it really is man i'm I'm happy i have this thank you so much for sharing with me uh one last question before the speed round the mission statement is to inspire empower and transform the industry how have you transformed how have i transformed it's a good question so many ways, so many ways. Um, I guess I got to go back to fear. Fear does not influence my decision making today. Whereas fear used to really, really, if I was scared enough, I wouldn't do it necessarily. And if I wasn't scared enough, I would push myself to the point of being too scared. Um, so I, you know, fear does not really influence my decision making today. I, I, I live with fear, not in fear. And I ask for as much help as I possibly can. I am never ashamed or feel like weird about asking for help. I treat my team like my family. Um, I put the team first always. I always think about like a football team, right? Like the team the success of the team is based on um, how much focus is put on them, right? Like the GM, the head coach, the owners invest all of their money on training, recovery, uh, nutrition, coaches. You know, they put all this money into the team. And when the team performs, the seats in the stadium 
are never empty. Ever, ever, ever. When they're not putting a lot of energy on the team and the team's not performing, the seats are empty. Yeah. So the team is everything. Yeah. You know, the team is absolutely everything. And I know that for sure to be the truth today. And, um, you know, I guess the last thing I would say is that, uh, I've learned to, I, I hate work-life balance and I hate that thing, right? Like people always say, Oh, how do you balance your work and your family? And, you know, but I just, I've, I've been able to create boundaries in my life. Whereas when I was coming up as an entrepreneur early days, I had no boundaries. I would work 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, you know, sacrifice everything. And today I don't because all we get is 24 hours to live. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I love this conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Yo, Unstoppables, I want to use this ad space to let you know about an affiliate relationship I have with the company Mies. Actually, Mies has been a past sponsor, but they've adopted this really great affiliate program, and I want to give it a shot. But here's the thing. I won't get credit for your referral unless you use my specific, special, unique Link and that link is getmes.com slash unstoppable. So if you listen to this ad and you want me's, make sure you use that link. And instead of actually uh, recording a new ad, I really like the first one I did with them. So I'm just going to roll it and uh, let the ad work. It's magic. Here it is. Here are four reasons why you need me's in your restaurant. One, it's the most accurate recipe costing tool on the planet. Never again waste time trying to find yields and converting unit measures or creating extra sub recipes just to account for yield updates because Mies has a database of thousands of ingredients and prep actions with yields and conversions built right into the interface. So you get immediate output of your costs and your conversions. That's huge. Number two, you will train your staff the right way and save countless hours your team sees in real time updates of all the recipe content plus you can send notifications and answer questions directly through me's quickly and easily create slideshows with video and image so you can show your team exactly what they need when they need it here's the third reason why you need me's in your restaurant you will reduce waste and execute with consistency me's enables you to make precisely the amount of food you need and that's because every ingredient has automated unit conversions Tell Mies how many portions you want. Watch your recipe scale automatically. Tell Mies how much yield you want. Watch it scale automatically. You can even enter the amount of ingredients you have on hand and then watch the recipe scale automatically. Here's the fourth and final reason why you need Mies in your restaurant. It organizes and shares your content like never before. Mies is like Google Drive specifically for the culinary operation. Here's your call to action. Go to get Mies. That's M-E-E-Z dot com slash unstoppable and make sure you mention restaurant unstoppable when signing up to get three free months when you get the annual business plan. Get on it. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Waking up at 5 a.m. What is your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness. 
my biggest weakness. There's so many. Um, taking things personally. What is your biggest challenge today? Learning a new industry. How are you overcoming that? Asking for help from my team. Oh, <laughs> uh, what do you? Th- what's one thing you look for when you're when you are building that team? When you're doing the interview? When you're growing your team? What are you looking for? What questions are you asking? I'm looking for positive people. Period. Mm-hmm. What's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or better restaurant owner? Um, uh, well, <laughs> there's the four agreements and then there's also a book that I just finished called, um, Oh God, it's by Napoleon Hill. Think and grow rich. Nope. Um, the secrets of success. No. Something the devil. Uh, oh, out, out, outwitting out, the devil. Out, outwitting the, That's out, such an yeah. audiobook. It's amazing. Yeah, outwitting the devil. It's, it's amazing. It's such a good audiobook. The whoever they got to play the role of the devil just does know, an incredible job. Yeah. Um, what is one thing you don't feel restaurant tours do well enough or often enough? Take time to celebrate the wins. What is one service you've outsource. So when I say service, not necessarily a technological service in specific to your restaurants, but a service that you realize you could get that thing done by outsourcing and finding somebody else to do it for you. Definitely bookkeeping. And who do you use for your bookkeeping? Uh, well, I don't know if they're in business anymore, um, <laughs> but it was a husband and wife duo, Rob Marzan. They were amazing. Yeah. Uh, what is one technolo- technology you implemented in your businesses that had a huge impact on communication, bottom line, profitability, marketing, anything along those lines? Um, when we went from hardwired POS to tablet, it opened up a lot of doors for us. Uh, and I, th- I, you know, actually, I gotta say that I think one of the one of the biggest reporting tools. This was early on before there was a lot of stuff out there, but but Avero really helped us understand our business a lot more. Did Avero get sucked up by Compete? I believe so. And now competes with Restaurant Three Sixty Five. Yeah. So it's all kind of starting to mush together like they predicted it would. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've used all three of those separately as well. Yeah. Any comments on? Restaurant 365 is a no-brainer. I'm curious. This is something that I'm... I used to subscribe to the school of thought that you would graduate to Restaurant 365 because it's such a robust platform and that you could probably get away with a bookkeeper and like QuickBooks to mm-hmm. start lower. You know. Yeah, when you're scaling and you're a restaurant group, you need a, a robust system. I've heard other people say that, um, you know, you should if you have intentions to scale, start from day one with Restaurant 365. Not a bad idea. Um, so it's expensive to do it from day one. Yeah. But what are the benefits? I mean, you understand your inventory systems, you know, you really sort of build out the business to, to be ready for scale from, from the day one. If you know, you're going to scale, then I would deeply consider potentially starting out that way. Cause like having to rejigger everything when you're scaling is hard. What is the one way I look at it? Odds are you're, you're looking to get money when you open a restaurant, right? What is one year's use of restaurant 365? Maybe a couple of thousand dollars, right? You know, I don't really know. I think it's maybe a couple thousand dollars. What is a, maybe a couple thousand dollars when you're taking out a loan for $500,000? Yeah, no. I think, <laughs> like, I think restaurant 365 is a no-brainer. Account for it, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? 
Um, that's, I don't know. I mean, I'm not completely sold on that, but I'm starting to see the argument and I'm starting to, to see that as a possibility. Okay. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the word or in the news that you'd be leaving this world tomorrow, all the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? I know you interviewed Lewis house. I'm willing to admit that I got the inspiration from this question from his podcast. Hmm. <laughs> um, well, does it have to be business related? No Why? Every night that I put my kids down to bed, um, my wife and I switch back and forth. Uh, we have this, something called the nine things and I read them two books. I sing them stand by me. And then I ask for the nine things. And the nine things started with my dad. Uh, He taught me that uh, when you meet somebody for the first time, look him in the eyes and give him a firm handshake. And um, that's massive. So connecting immediately with human beings through that was very, uh, was something that my dad ingrained in me. Another thing that my father ingrained in me, which is kind of controversial today, but it's made me the man I am, is he taught me, to respect women at all costs and ladies always go first. And sometimes I get crap for that today in today's uh, climate, but I believe it to be very important that men understand that the woman is to be respected at all costs. And so that's something that I've always done and something that I will continue to do regardless of what people think. Ladies go first. Uh, eye contact, the handshake, firm handshake, so squeeze and eyes, ladies go first. (laughs) And one last thing that has just helped me so much in life, um, and made other people feel really, really good and feel, um, heard is to remember people's names. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, what Dale was it? Uh, Carnegie says the, the, the best word or if everyone's favorite word is their, is own, their name. own name. Yeah. Something like that. Um, awesome stuff. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I find the majority of my future guests by letting the industry choose who I should talk to. So who do you respect and admire and I believe would make a great guest mentor like he made for us today? Richard Corain. Richard Corrine. Look, I'm coming at Dan, Danny Myers, partner at the Union Square Hospitality Group. I would love to get Richard on the show. He's That's one incredible. of the best guys on the planet, period. Done. Anybody who knows him, he goes by RC. He is one of the greatest of all time. Beautiful. And how can we connect with you if we want to follow your work? You already mentioned Creatures of Habit. Uh, any Instagram handles or websites or things Yeah, like so that? Creatures of Habit is Creatures with a K. Um, so you just go to creaturesofhabit.com to check out what we're doing there. You can go to at Creatures of Habit on all social media panels. You can find me at Michael Chernow, Meatball Shop at Meatballers, and Seymour's at Seymour's. Beautiful. Michael, thank you so much, my man. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Michael Chernow, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, really great story. And I think that you're going to start to see a lot more of this. People who open their restaurants, who use their restaurant to develop a name for themselves. They are now maintaining that name, carrying that name on to do other things, to uh, develop lifestyle brands around their name and maybe 
they kind of like use their restaurants as like a, a launching pad. But I think what you're going to see going forward is people focusing on developing the personal brand, the lifestyle brand, because it's it's so much more affordable to, to develop a brand than to open an entire brick and mortar restaurant. And you can use that following. You can use that influence to launch your restaurant. Uh, you're not going to open a restaurant overnight, but you can do things like ghost kitchens and that can evolve into pop-ups and that can evolve into a small brick and mortar and which can evolve into a more full service, greater scale concept. I think you're going to see a lot of this sort of thing. And I think that this is an example of that. So interesting things to come in the future. And I will, for one, be keeping an eye on you, Mr. Chernow. So what's going on at Restaurant Unstoppable? Uh, lots of interesting things, actually. We uh, are headed to Nashville. So uh, we're going to do a little project. Uh, not going to release too much information on that yet, but we're headed to Nashville. And while we're out in Nashville, I'd love to do some interviews out there, get some restaurant tours on the show. We've been to Nashville a few times now, so I think I've covered my Nashville grounds pretty good. So if you have any recommendations, I'm paying attention because we're going to be at there at the end of this month. So in like two weeks and I'm kind of hustling to get at least three or four interviews recorded while we're out there. So please email me, Eric at restaurant If you know of somebody I need to be making an example of out in Nashville, also in the network today, when this episode goes live, we have the habits club, which is popping off at noon today, Eastern time. So the Habits Club is something, it's a club that spun off of the book club. The first book we read was Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I think that the the power of habit formation or understanding how to form habit and the impact of habit is so important. And it, it like it literally sets the foundation, the bedrock to your success in the future. We started a habit club to basically keep each other accountable to the habits we're trying to form. And we want you to be a part of it. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, come hang out in the network. And I can't wait to meet you. All right, guys, until next time, peace out.